in a study looking through the book of Hebrews. And I'm just going to pick right up where you guys left off. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through uh, chapter 4. So at this point in the book of Hebrews, it's established that long ago in ancient times, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But now in these latter times, he's spoken to his people through his son. And then the author of Hebrews continues to make the case that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, We have to pay close attention to what we heard, lest we drift away from it. And so he takes a break in the middle of this section to show us one of the areas we have to listen very closely to the teaching so that we don't drift away from the living God. And it's this whole section here about worshiping God through rest. We live in the middle of the busiest culture that has ever existed in the history of the world. And you are born into a culture that's going a thousand miles an hour from birth until adulthood. And unless we make an intentional decision to step off of that treadmill and to live in a countercultural way, you're unaware of the air that you breathe and how fast we are going and how unable we are to stop going at that pace. And what the author of Hebrews is going to make a case here for is that worshiping God through rest is the culmination of what a true relationship with Jesus looks like. It's not just working for him, it's letting him be our strength on our behalf as we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is very, very hard because technological advancements have made acceptance of human limitations very difficult. We are no longer bound by daylight. I can work all night long into the early morning if I want. And because of that, we don't think that we have physical limitations. There's energy drinks for that. I can just keep going physically. We're not aware that we have mental and intellectual limitations. Not all of us is good at everything. And we have relational limitations. Not everybody has an unlimited capacity for relationships. And so we are unused to recognizing that we have these limits placed on us by God in his goodness to remind us that we are human and he is not. And one of the things in Deuteronomy chapter 15, when he's giving the law about the Sabbath, he says, remember you were slaves in Egypt and that I am the Lord who redeemed you out of it. So when God starts talking about Sabbath, Asking us to remember when we were slaves. He's calling our attention to the fact that work is good, but if you can't stop, if you can't say no, if you are chronically overcommitted, you are a slave. You are in bondage. And it is that bondage that God redeems his people out of to walk in freedom. And so through that lens, rest is an act of liberation. Rest is an act of defiance in the midst of a culture that wants to define us by what we do. Rest is a means of aligning who we are with the living God. 
And the idea of these natural rhythms of life are prominent all throughout the Bible. There are times for feasting, and then there's times for fasting. There's times for weeping, and there's times for rejoicing. There's times for community, and then there's times for solitude. And most notably, there's a time for work, and there's a time for rest. And that's not a minor rhythm. It's the fourth commandment. <laughs> it's one of the ten, so it made it in the top ten of things we ought to pay close attention to. And elsewhere in Scripture, it says it's the fourth commandment, the only commandment with promise that if we don't take heed to this commandment, there's consequences for it. So it's kind of a big deal. Why? Because it is one of the ways, as we're going to see in a second, that we imitate God who himself rested on the seventh day. So just think for a second about the use of the number seven in Scripture. There are seven days of creation, and God rested on the seventh. In the story of Noah, there were seven pairs of every kind of animal he was to bring on the ark. How many people were there in Noah's family who joined the ark? Seven. Jacob served seven years for Rachel and Leah. He served as his uncle Laban. Joseph prophesied that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Egypt. In the book of Revelation, there's seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. The number is used over and over again. And whenever the number seven is referred to, it's, sp it's speaking of completion, perfection. And so when it says intentionally that God rested on the seventh day, it's calling our attention to a perfect completion where we are able to rest in what God himself has done in his fullness. And the only way that we're ever able to engage Sabbath rest is by being completely satisfied with what God has done for us, so much so that we can check out and let him keep the universe spinning while we take a nap. Which, by the way, that's good news. <laughs> Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse three things we're going to be looking at very briefly this morning. The first thing that the author here establishes is that there's a warning. There's an Old Testament warning. And then he calls our attention to a New Testament promise. So there's an Old Testament warning, a New Testament promise, and then last, there is a future promise of rest for all of us. So this is an incredibly practical section. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about whether or not you are actually having a satisfying experience with the living God. It is possible to be a follower of Jesus that is missing out on the experience of what it's like to actually call God your father and Jesus your older brother, being empowered internally by the Holy Spirit to actually do what he commands, to be his branches as he's the vine. And so in that way, there's an experience that he's warning us it's possible to miss out on. So he begins by saying, you might miss out on this. And then 
he shows us the example of the Old Testament warning in chapter 3. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter that rest because of unbelief. So we have a promise here that's preceded by a warning. And the warning is that a hard heart leads to unbelief, which leads us to fall away from the living God and never actually experience this invitation of rest. The hardened heart leads to unbelief, which leads to falling away. Look at that in verse 12. Take care, lest there's any evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we see that rest is the result of belief. Think about that for a second. The ability to rest is the result of belief. Belief in what? That Jesus is going to get you to heaven when you die? No. You're going to need a bigger belief than that. This is not just belief that gets us into the kingdom of God. Trusting Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and trading your stained life for his perfect sacrifice is entrance into the kingdom. But if you're going to be able to accept that invitation of rest, you need to know a lot more about Jesus than that he can get you to heaven when you die. You need to know what his kingdom is like. Because if we have a deep, unshakable confidence of what life in his kingdom is like, then we're going to be able to rest. So, what is his kingdom like? Does Jesus share his throne with anybody in the kingdom? The answer is no. Which means, I don't have to be in control. My eternity is trusting in the finished work of Jesus, not how glad he should be that he saved me. Which means on my day off, I can trust that Jesus is going to save people too. Is anyone more glorious in the kingdom than Jesus? No. Then I don't have to be seen by you as perfect. Which means if I can't tell you no, and I'm overcommitted because I'm too concerned what you might think about me if I couldn't be your all-sufficient Savior, 
If I know what life in the kingdom is like, I can say, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. That's beyond the capacity that God's given me. And you can judge me all you want, and I'm still going to take a nap. I don't have to be seen as perfect because only one person in the kingdom gets to be perfect, and it's not me. I will let you down, guaranteed. We have to understand what life in his kingdom is like. Has Jesus accomplished everything that is the most important for us? Yes. So I can choose to leave things undone. I can choose to leave things undone. Now here's where this gets tricky. Look at verse 13. Tells us very clearly that sin is what? Deceitful. Is it possible that one of the ways sin deceives us is by causing us to think that rest can only happen after our work is finished? Is it possible that one of the ways we're deceived by sin is by thinking, I'll rest when the job is done? Now, let me ask you, how many times has it happened that you chose to go home for the day because absolutely everything on your to-do list was done? That's not the way life works. At some point, you're going to have to cut it off and say, I have to be done working at this point, because as soon as you finish one thing, there's always something else that takes its place. And so I want to suggest we need a perspective shift from work as project-based to time-based. Because project-based work says, I will rest as soon as this project is done. But that's what leaves me burning the midnight oil, getting up super early, cheating my family, cheating my wife, cheating my kids, because baby, I just got to get this done, and then we'll have that date night, I promise. But the problem is, as soon as I hit that deadline, there's another one, because the reward for doing a good job on something is more work. Hey, you handled that thing without complaining. Welcome to church plants. <laughs> you want to be on the sound team too? I got a job for you. Rather than project-based, we have to think about it the way God does in these 24-hour periods that he gives us, and there will be a 24-hour period where we intentionally step off that treadmill and we choose to enter into his rest and we do everything necessary on the six days that he's given us so that we can imitate what he is doing there. There is a story told by Stephen Covey, who's ironically the productivity guru. He tells the story of two lumberjacks that are out in the field chopping down trees. Some of you may have heard it. One of the lumberjacks is chopping down trees with his saw for seven hours, just hacking away. And the other lumberjack works for an hour and takes a break, comes back, works for an hour and takes a break. And at the end of the day, the guys are comparing how much they've done for the day. And the lumberjack, who kept taking all these breaks, has double the pile. And so the other guy gets angry and says, I've been working nonstop for seven hours, and you've been taking breaks. How is it you have more than me? And the other lumberjack says, I wasn't taking breaks. I was sharpening my saw. It's like that. We, this isn't, you don't just need scripture to remind you. This is science now. Like, we understand the benefits of resting actually cause you to recuperate 
your mental, your physical, your emotional, your relational faculties so that when you get back at it, you are able to go full force. And when you work, you work with every faculty that God's given you. But if you can never rest, that's a self-indictment that I'm not actually a hard worker, I'm a slave to something. And listen, if we're just sharing our sicknesses, this is the way that I'm wired. I am wired to find my worth, value, and purpose in how much I do. And I'm a pretty competent human being. And what I found is people like me more when I do things for them. And it's an easy way to be well-liked by being competent and doing something well. And I know how hard it is when someone asks me to do something good. Because listen, we're in the kingdom of God. People don't come up to me like, hey, can you sell this track for me? Oh, I can't say no. No. They come up to me like, hey, there's really a need right now in nursery. Hey, I need you to come and preach at my church. Hey, there's really this need for a small group leader. And I know I'm at capacity, but I can't say no. It's hard to say no to good things, especially when I am so wired to receiving my own sense of worth as a human being based on what I do. Because that's exactly what the world does. And the church has got to be a countercultural community where those things are done willingly, not out of obligation, and with joy. Now, the New Testament promise. There's a warning that it's possible to miss out on this. So the assumption isn't that everyone who's in Christ has this. You may very well be in Christ and not be experiencing God through his rest. But the New Testament promise in chapter 4, verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did his. And this is the heart of Sabbath rest, imitating God by resting from our works. Here's why this, this is hard for good evangelical Christians. We believe that our works can't commend us to God for salvation. We believe we've been saved by grace through faith, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. But something clicks in our minds when we're already Christians where we think the process of sanctification now rests on our works. Jesus worked hard to get me in the kingdom. Now it's all on me. 
Listen, if you've been saved by grace through faith, you're sanctified by grace through faith. The whole process doesn't change where God says, hey, I did what my end of the bargain. Now it's time for you slackers to start stepping it up. The whole thrust of the biblical narrative is that God is strength for those who have none, who God is the finished perfection of those who will be unable to need it. It's kind of why Jesus came, according to Galatians. Because the law, our effort, was unable to make us more into the image of that God, so he sent his son, coming in the image of the invisible God, to live that perfect life, to die that substitutionary death, and then to victoriously rise from the dead so that we would be able to be brought near to God and that we would be perfected by that same faith and grace. That doesn't mean there's no effort, but it means that our efforts are rightly placed. Because in an effort to become more Christ-like, we have made more Pharisees than the New Testament ever did. It's true. And here's the thing, I've watched this over and over and over again in the church. We applaud that. We applaud that. We had a guy who came to Christ. He was one of our friend's co-workers years ago. This guy was just living for himself in every kind of debauchery. And he and the girlfriend he was living with came to a Christmas party. We invited him out on a couple trips. Eventually, this guy gave his life to Jesus, and everybody was praising God. What we didn't realize is that when Jesus transforms a human's heart, they have 30 years of living the way they used to live to work out of that. And so this guy used to be a womanizer. And he was a womanizer because he had a power trip. And so if I can prove that I can exert my influence over this woman, I feel good about myself. Now, we all know you can't be a womanizer in the church. So what did he do? He joined our church, and he became a part of every single ministry. You needed someone to serve? He was the first one there. He was the last one to leave. And everybody looked at him and said, this is incredible. Look at this guy. He just came to Christ, and now what a servant he is. And eventually, people wanted him to step up and take leadership positions. And all the while, we are applauding this man's sin. And guess what happened when there was a ministry we asked him not to be involved in? Blew up. And it turns out, he wasn't there out of purely altruistic motives. He needed to be needed. He was a weak and insecure man who needed other people's affirmation. And when we had to tell him, hey, you need to stop serving. Everywhere? Every ministry you're a part of, you need to step down for six months. And all of a sudden, his idolatry hit him in the face. I'm not actually here to serve. I'm here to beef up my own ego. And that was a story that ended well. He repented. He recognized that he had transferred his idolatries in the world to the church. And it was sick how the church just applauded it. We watched this guy live out his idols, and people just said, what a servant of the Lord. Sin is deceitful. 
the nature of it. I know you can work, but can you rest? How do you know if you believe that? Have you ever felt that you didn't deserve to be blessed by God because of your lifestyle? Maybe you haven't been reading your Bible enough, you haven't been praying enough, you believe that you didn't deserve to be blessed by God. Have you ever looked at other people wondering if they were more deserving of more of Jesus because of how disciplined they were? These are all evidences that this is what we actually believe, that it's on us. That this rests all on us. Now, look at verse 11, though. It says, let us therefore strive to enter this rest. (laughs) So here's the irony. It doesn't mean no work is involved. The word strive is a very specific word. You are going to have to intentionally work hard to rest. What what does that mean? I think you and I know exactly what that means. It's that internal wrestle that happens every time we make the decision to take a break. We couch this in the humble brag. I've talked to so many people oh, I just don't think I could ever take a 24-period hour off. I don't think I could ever spend time in solitude and silence. I'm just, I'm just too much of a team player. I'm just too hard a worker. I think I'd go crazy. You probably would, but not because you're a hard worker, because you're an idolater. And it's hard to stop for a 24-hour period because guess who I'm left with when I'm left alone? You guys would not believe, maybe you would, my inner dialogue feels like an insane asylum when I'm left alone enough. And I will do mental gymnastics to figure out a way why checking my phone one more time is resting. Why watching that Netflix show for one more binge is actually resting because I'm not going to move my body. Seriously, what I can do in my mind to justify what I actually want to do is phenomenal. If there were gymnastics for it, I'd be a gold winner. Because I understand how hard it is to actually do that. It's an intentional decision, and it's difficult. And if we are uncomfortable being left alone with ourselves, that's a problem. Because Jesus refuses to yell when we are refusing to listen to reasonable speaking. It's kind of like those of you who have kids. My wife and I, me, I'll speak for me, I get in this cycle where I believe my children literally do not hear me until I use my dad voice. And listen, I got a good dad voice. And so when I throw up the dad voice, all of a sudden everybody's like this, and I'm like, how come you can't listen when I use my normal voice? I try, Listen, I'm a loud person to begin with. I try to have an inside voice. I really do. But if you don't listen to the inside voice, I have to use my big dad voice. And then everybody's listening. We do the same thing. God's like, I've been trying to gently communicate to you, but you're so loud. You're so busy. You're so active. You won't take time just to sit because, God forbid, we might be bored. So resting is a stewardship issue. It's a stewardship issue. To not 
give our bodies and our minds the rest that God designed for them is to misuse something that God has given us. Which then leads to the question of, can we stop? And in order to be able to stop, there has to be not only a belief about what life in the kingdom of God is like, but we have to be willing to kill the idols of multitasking and productivity and efficiency and milking every last drop out of whatever workday we have in front of us. So a good question is, what do you think you need in order to be able to rest? What do you feel you need in any, in any given week or day to feel perfectly not guilty taking a day off? I'm going to rest, and I'm not going to apologize to anyone for it. What is it that you feel needs to be done? Now, here's the point of God resting on the seventh day. If God, who never needs to rest, chooses to, but you, who need to rest, choose not to, it's a sure sign that you think more highly of yourselves than is reasonable. God is the only one that actually could plow through for seven days. And he chose to bless the seventh day by resting. If I am unable to do what God himself has modeled, it's because I think too highly of my work. But if I don't do this, what's, what's going to happen? If, if I'm not there, and believe me, as a pastor, this is my weekly struggle. If I'm not there for a couple who needs to be counseled on Saturday night, their marriage is going to be over by Sunday morning. If I'm unable to fill this gap, there's another hole in the boat. I've got to be the one to plug it. If I'm unable to step into this, everything's going.